Father, I pray that as we continue in worship, that what we just sang will be true of us. That in all the things that we bring to the table, both this morning and in the week that is upcoming for us, in the season of life we find ourselves in, in the situations that life presents to us in our marriage, with our family, at school, at work, home with a classmate, that whatever stressors and anxieties and worries and whatever joys and praises and delights that we have would equally be brought to you. And our cry can be that it is Jesus, only Jesus whom we worship and that we find ourselves so grateful and thankful for how you've drawn us yourself. So God, we thank you. We have the privilege of approaching your throne of grace with such confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that you'd help us to stay oriented well to that reality that we have a, a hope and a future because of what your son Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. We love you. We thank you for the time we have together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, good stuff. Hey guys, um, so grateful to have you here this morning and, uh, and really looking forward to spending some time with you. I'm thankful that you're here and I, I hope that by the time we're done that you will be renewed in your faith, specifically this morning, that you will also be challenged. And I hope this morning that you will feel uncomfortable where you are. Isn't that great? Not awesome. All right. <laughs> Love it. Many of you know that I coach U12 boys soccer. Uh, do you know that? See, now you all know that. I coach U12 boys soccer, and that is an exciting time in my life. I really enjoy that most of the time. And uh, it is a unique experience to do that. It's a lot of fun, and it also comes, as you can imagine, with its own set of challenges. And what I tell the boys at the beginning of the year is something that most coaches tell any, any players. It's kind of a, a rally cry around the most important thing that we have, you know, what we're about and what we're going to be doing as a team and some things we want to work on and just how we function as a team. And one of those things I tell them is, listen, you're here and you're a soccer player. Okay? You're not, first of all, a goalie or first of all a midfielder, or first of all a defender or a striker, you're, you're a soccer player. And where we need to put you as coaches, we're going to ask you to play with the right attitude of being a teammate and a soccer player, wherever you are in the field. That's what we need from you. Are we okay? Yeah, we're okay. All right, one, two, three, team, let's go. That works well for the first 15 minutes of the first practice. Okay. Now that we're several weeks into the, into the season, and certain players are used to and comfortable playing in certain spots, we ask them to move. Now, what do you think happens? Rebellion. I'm not a goalie. I'm not a midfielder. I'm not a defender. I can't play offense. Like, wait, wait, wait. Remember? Remember at the beginning of the season? You're a soccer player. You're a soccer player. And we need to move you over here now. <laughs> okay, okay. And they end up moving over there. And here's the reality for all of us. We all settle into positions we feel comfortable with, right? We all settle into our part in the organization, our part in the family, our part in the church. And when someone asks us to rethink that position, 
this series, Refocus, Refresh, Refuel, is asking us to say, wait, why are we here as a church? And what is your role as being part of the church? Not just a midfielder, not just a defender, not just a goalie. Why are we here? And specifically, why are you here? All right? We've been four weeks, this is five weeks into this nine-part series, so we are in the middle, and we're going to crest over the hill for next week. We have asked a couple of questions about the church. We've said that we've asked a question at the beginning. Number one, what are we doing as a church body? We answered that question with mission. We talked about the reality that it's easy to have mission drift and just kind of move off of our mission. We said, what are we doing? What is Grace Point doing? We're developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. That's our quote-unquote business. Right? That's our work. Now, where we headed, as we do that, where we headed was the next question. That's a vision question. And there we talked about, if you can get the image in your mind, that we want to be present in the town square. That as we develop fully devoted followers of Christ, we want to be present in the town square, being relentless in the pursuit of the social, spiritual, and cultural good. That's where we're headed with this mission. We're heading there. Okay? Now we ask the question as well. The third question is, what will it feel like on the journey? And this is a question of values. We talked about value one in our church, value two, now value three today. Value one is about being fearless with one another, forgiving, speaking openly with one another. Value two is about service, about serving our neighbor with abandon, asking the simple question, how can I help? And allowing that to drive and dominate what we do. Now, this week, we're going to talk about something else, and that is our third core value related to your faith and related to my faith. Now, you may notice up here there's a new thing on the screen. If you are into the social media realm, or if you're tweeting or you're Facebook or whatever, or Instagram, new hashtag, hashtag Grace Points. If you have some thoughts related to this series that we're on, this will allow us to track the conversation on social media, okay? So for those who don't know what I'm talking about, carry on with business as usual and, and no mind that. But I wanted to at least acknowledge the, what you see up there on the screen, okay? So this week is about our faith and in particular um, how we view um, what we're called to as people, okay? Let me, you need to know my background just briefly. When, when I grew up in the church, I, I would often, you may not know this, I would often try to be sick on Sundays, and well again on Mondays, okay, because I hated going to church. I thought it was so boring. It was terrible. I mean, I would sit there, and I would, we had a tile floor in Barbados where I was at in church, and I would, I would in my mind, I would just count the tiles. It was black, white, black, white, black, white, black, white, and I'd play like hopscotch in my mind with things. I would draw battleships during the sermon that droned on and on and on forever and ever and ever. I would watch. I would count the bricks in the wall, and I would, we had fans, exterior ceiling fans with exterior wiring, so I'd like watch the wiring down the wall and imagine being on a slide on it. And go, I mean, I would do anything I could to entertain myself during church because I, hated, I just hated going to church. And I came to believe over time, just without anyone telling me this, that there really isn't a lot to it. And that, in fact, church is just kind of about maybe a, a club and people try to get together. And really the highest value of church is to, to allow you to keep your life stable. And that is the end game. Like as long as the people in the church balance the budget, no one gets too angry. As long as enough people keep coming, people feel okay. And what more is there? Oh, that people are kind and nice to each other. That's important too. And to me, as a kid, I'm like, what is that about? Like, that's not a high calling for anything. I mean, anybody in the world can do that. 
Is that it? Is that it? Is that all that church is to be? I mean, you've got to be kidding me. There has to be more. How many of you have ever read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis? Screw tape letter people? All right. Again, just I'll say this one more time. Up here, it, it's hard to see. It kind of looks like this. If you, there we go. Screw tape letters people, thank you. All right, now with some enthusiasm. That's awesome. All right. How many of you just pulled a muscle doing that? Okay. Um, screw tape letters written by C.S. Lewis, and the whole focus of that book, if you ever read that, is that... Um, essentially the devil, okay, is, is writing to a, a, a demon who's trying to, uh, to, to distract and tempt a Christian. And Wormwood is that devil or the demon who's trying to distract or tempt a Christian. And in there, Lewis writes a beautiful story and difficult to read sometimes, but, but so helpful to see the struggle of the Christian life through the temptation of the demon. All right? And in there, he'll, he'll write some things. And here's what he writes about faith and how we're called down to moderation. He writes this to, to Wormwood. He says this, uh, Wormwood basically saying this, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. In other words, Wormwood, just get them to be moderate. Just get... Just get, you can, he can go to church, that's fine. He can read the Bible, that's fine. But a moderated religion is as good to us as no religion at all. So you don't even need to tell him not to go anymore. Just have him go to church and feel like that's enough. Just have him read the Bible and feel like that's enough. Just have him give money and balance the budget, and that's enough. Make sure that the kids don't swear, and that's enough. Just have it be moderate. Just have it be moderate, and that's enough. And I look at that, and I think, come on, come on, come on. We're not called to that, right? Right? We're not called to that. Our highest calling as a church is not just that people show up in the pews, right? Good. And it's not just that the budget is balanced, right? There has to be more, right? This is really good. This is kind of fun, right? Right, right, okay. I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to trick you in anything. I'm not going to say something that's going to make, why did I say right when I shouldn't have? But, okay, this, this is what we know, that we are called to more than that. Yeah, I mean, we're, it, it's not just enough to say that my faith is best expressed and is fully expressed by having perfect attendance, being in a church where we balance the budget, and every now and then we do something here and there. We all know intuitively it's more than that. It has to be more than that. The problem with that is it requires a quality of faith, a quality of belief that is difficult to maintain and engender or nurture in the long run. And that quality of faith is what I want to talk about this morning because that quality of faith is intimidating and it's scary because it's out of our control. Now, I want to this morning walk you through what we call the faith chapter in the Bible then I want to ask three questions, and then I want to reflect off of a story of an individual and ask some questions to us personally, okay? So if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you or don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew around you, and that, by the way, is our gift to you this morning if you don't own a Bible. The book of Hebrews is in the New Testament. You'll find that about two-thirds of the way through the, the Bible, and uh, you will find, it might be easy to look it up in the table of contents if you don't know where it is, it's no problem to do that, um, but kind of the midway through, so midway through the New Testament there in the second third of the Bible, third third of the Bible, excuse me. All right, Hebrews chapter 11, here we go. Uh, we're reading through this whole chapter this morning, good stuff, and we're going we're gonna to walk right through. Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 1. Now, faith is being sure 
of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Let's pause it right there. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. If you've been in the church before, you've already heard that phrase. It's being sure and certain of things that we hope and can't see yet. And then verse 3 underscores this reality that that, um, by faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen, in other words, the world around me, the trees, the mountains, the hills, what I see was made out of what was visible. Excuse me, was not made out of what was visible. In other words, somewhere along the line, something happened to create the world. Now, if you are not even a Christian or a Bible person or believe in God at all, you have to have some kind of faith about how the world came into existence. Maybe you're a Big Bang person, right? and you just think that, that happened that way. Yeah, I understand why you think that way. Maybe you're, you're into evolution and get the, I, I understand why you might think that way. But even if you believe that way, you know, of course, that requires faith. It requires faith. If you're a Christian, believe in God as the creator of it all, that requires faith as well. And the point of the author of Hebrews is saying is, listen, you are living on a physical planet that is a daily reminder that you are standing on something that used to not exist at all. And what is visible was made out of what is invisible. It's like faith. The future of your life is hard to tell what it is. It's invisible, but yet I live and I exist on a planet that reminds me all the time of faith. I have faith. I just know the world exists, but I don't know where it came from. But I believe it's here because, well, it's here. This is faith. It's being sure of what I hope for, confident of what I don't see. And then the author goes on to write about people. And this gets really very, very cool, very interesting, and it walks right into our three questions. But he tells a story of people throughout the Old Testament. He begins here by talking about Abel and, and his faith in verse 4 of chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. And by faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience the death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And then this statement, verse 6, And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I wish that that verse would say that and without faith it's difficult to please God. That would be easier for me to swallow. Without faith it's impossible to please God. Tuck that principle away. Okay? Because the question at the end is going to press in a little bit on your faith and the extent of your faith. And so if this statement is true, without faith it's impossible to please God. If that is true... And if it's also true that you want to please God, then the question follows, to what extent do I believe and am I showing faith in God? See my tracking on that? If it's impossible to please God without faith and you want to please God, then to what extent does my life show that I have a faith in God. We also know the Bible tells us that faith without works is dead. It's not enough to believe. Even the demons believe God and shudder, James 2 tells us. 
Faith without works, without doing something is dead. So if you want to please God, and it's impossible to please God without faith, what are the works of faith that I'm doing that show that I want to please God? Okay, Don't worry, we'll hold on the conviction for now. We'll keep going and get to that a little bit later on. All right, verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. How weird would that have been, truly? That would have been so strange to do. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Profound moment for Noah. Now, Abraham, we're introduced to Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, check out the last part of the verse, even though he did not know where he was going. (laughs) Of course, I would do that easily, right? (laughs) No, I wouldn't. It's so difficult. Hey, I'm not going to tell you your destination. Just pack up and go. Right. By faith, verse 9, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him in the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, that's amazing, because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. You see the reason given there in verse 11? Because Abraham believed God. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, even though you are old as dirt. And even though your wife cannot have children, you will be the father of many nations. And Abraham believed God. And here's what the text says right there. Because He considered him faithful who made the promise. Because Abraham considered God believable, God did this work in Abraham. Verse 12, and so, and here's the consequence, so from this one man, and he as good as dead, in other words, he was old as could be, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And this leads us and drops us right into our first question as we reflect on our own faith. Three questions. The first question is this. What's at stake? What's at stake? In other words, think of Abraham. He had no idea what was at stake. In that moment in his life when he had to choose, do I believe or do I not believe that God can make me a father of many nations? He had no idea what hung in the balance of his response to that decision. He had no idea what could come if he believed God. But in the face of circumstances that were impossible, he's so old, his wife can't even have kids, Abraham chooses to believe God. And the author of Hebrews tells us here in verse 11 that it was on the basis of that belief that he was given all of these descendants. What's at stake? It's a question to ask. When you are looking at a situation in your own personal life, with your family, and how you respond to medical crisis for yourself, and how you respond to your own insecurities in school, and how you respond to your boss and your employees. What's at stake? What would be at stake if you don't do what you know you should do? It's a question to ask. What's at stake here with this issue of belief and faith for me? What's at stake? It's the first question. The future potential of acting in faith is amazing. What might you be missing if you stay living in fear. The second question comes right away in verse 13. Verse 13 says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. 
That is an amazing statement. Now here's, here's the question when I think about my faith. Number one, what's at stake? Number two, what's my story? Now, how many of you, let, let's have a moment of honest candor. Can we, can we do that? We can do that. We can do that. Don't worry, we won't be too honest, just marginally honest. How many of you, when you were younger, thought that old people, whoever that is for you, okay, old people were irrelevant, were disconnected, and didn't know what was going on in your world at the time? How many of you, when you were younger, thought that was true? Come on now, all right? Got some, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Okay, I will say, good, my quick survey is almost all of you. I'm going to say a strong majority. Isn't, isn't this the perception? I'm not saying reality, okay? Let me, let me clear this up. Let me clear this up so no one's offended. I'm not saying reality. I'm saying perception. When you're younger, you tend to think the people who are older are disconnected. They don't like change, and you know, it's difficult to stay relevant, and... You know, whatever. As you get older, you realize, you know what, there are some key people who, as they age, age so well, they actually stand out, and I want to emulate them. Why? Because what verse 13 says is true in their life. These people were still living by faith when they died. In other words, their lives are still given over to believing something more about God than they are willing to admit themselves. They realize that their resources are limited and they want to experience a kind of risk in their faith. They're still modeling something unusual. It is unusual to see somebody model faith well to the very end. And these people here in the scriptures do that. You have people and you know people in your life. As they age, their story continues to be, as I age, I want my faith to be as passionate and clear and risk-taking as it was in my teenage years, as it was in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. That as I age, I don't want to be the person who's only playing defense and not willing to move to midfield or goalie or do whatever I need to do. Because I'm a child of God, and whatever he needs from me, I'm willing to risk. And when you meet people like that, and you know they are aging well, their story is profound for you, and it shifts and changes how you see them and how you see your own faith. And so the question becomes on your faith, as you reflect on the faith that you say you have right now, what is your future story going to be? Will people look to you and say, man, this man is aging well. He's a, he's a Hebrews 11.13 man. He's still living by faith when he died. He's still taking risks to believe in God when he was in his last days. She is aging well. She is still taking risks to believe in God, even when the future is unclear. What's my story? What's it going to be? What's the story of my faith? What is it that I'm writing? Two questions so far. The third question comes... In the next couple of verses right here. Verse 13 continues. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Verse 14. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. 
I don't know if you see the language of sight and vision in here, but check it out again. Then to verse 13, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. These people, verse 14, were looking, there's a vision issue, looking for a country of their own. Verse 15, they weren't thinking of the country they left. Verse 16, they were longing for a better country. And so here's a question of my faith that I want to ask, and I hope you might want to ask as well, and that is, how's my sight? How's my sight? Great faith only makes sense if this world is not your home, right? Great faith only makes sense if this world isn't your home. If this world is all that you're looking for, I'm telling you, great faith makes no sense at all. It doesn't make sense to trust God to do something different if this world is your home. If your hope and faith is in the resources that this world will provide you, it doesn't make sense to trust God beyond that. So great faith requires that your sight go beyond what you see here and now. It just requires it. It's the only way that it makes sense because you believe there's something future that I simply can't see right now. He, he continues, the author continues here in verse 17. He says, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. You may remember that story. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, and he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now, skip forward to verse 32. And what more shall I say, the author writes, after going through all these people, even people that we didn't, I didn't read about yet, what more shall I say? And this is, a, this is an awesome section of scripture, by the way. All right, if you ever, as a, let me pause this and just look up here for a minute to me. In my, in my early years, going to church, when I would count the tiles on the floor and follow the electrical lines in the building and count, count the bricks and all that, I would dream of things way more exciting than what was currently happening. Just, I just would. And then I'd go home, and in Barbados we had one TV channel that was on for six hours a day, but someone had, would record on a VCR tape, okay, things that happened because they got satellite. They would record like sports games for me, and I would put them in the VCR and press play. You hear the, and there it appears on the TV. To me, that's exciting. Now I get to see something happening. Look at the effort these guys are putting out. Look at the drama unfold. Wow, this is exciting. Now, if you're anything like me, and you felt like somewhere along the line the church has lost its passion, lost its fervor, lost its drive, you've had some of those same feelings, follow along in the scriptures here, here in verse 32, because this is amazing. What these people do, what happens to them. He writes, he says, I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, and check this out, conquered kingdoms. You know anyone who's conquered a kingdom? 
Let me ask you, would that be exciting or not exciting? Would that be a walk in the park or not? Okay, continuing. Administered justice. Created a justice system that worked for people. That, that's a fairly significant deal. And gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions. Now we do that every Tuesday. Quenched the fury of the flames. And escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. That's mildly interesting. Women received back their dead. Are you kidding me? Raised to life again? We're talking about people conquering death. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. What are we talking about here? Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword and they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. They were commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised and God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Let me tell you, that's way more exciting than popping a VCR thing into the player and hitting play. That satisfies my little adrenaline rush. But are you kidding me? In other words, this is, okay, this is your legacy, and this is my legacy. This is the faith that you share. If you come to the place in your life where you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in the line of these people. Right? That's just reality. You are in the line of people who are conquering kingdoms, who are administering justice, who are seeing the dead raised to life, who are shutting the mouths of lions, who are engaged in all kinds of courageous, bold, cutting-edge kinds of things because of their faith. You know what's not here? They showed up to church every Sunday, and they balanced the budget, and they taught their kids to say please and thank you. They were awesome people. Now, nothing wrong with all that. Nothing wrong with all that. Hear me right. Nothing wrong with all that. But we all know there has to be more than that. We're in the line of this. Right? Right? Right. Thank you. We are. We're in this line. I want to tell you the story of William, little William. Little William was born in an obscure little town in England uh, in 1761. Anyone alive? I'm not going to. Okay. 1761. William was born, uh, and as he grew up as a young man, he became a, uh, an apprentice in a cobbler's shop. He converted, if you will, to faith, joined the Anglican church, which he admitted was of little interest to him at the time. It was not a very engaging time for him, probably similar to my experience growing up. But somewhere along the line, he caught a little bit of fire, a little bit of interest in the faith beyond his experience even in the church. And even though he wasn't a learned young man, he began to teach himself New Testament Greek. Stunning to me. I had to be forced to learn New Testament Greek, and he on his own learned New Testament Greek. He added over the years an interest in both Hebrew and Latin, which is additionally even more stunning to me uh, that he, he did that. But that was his interest. And he said, 
that of all the things he could do, he said, I can plod. I can plod. I can head toward a destination and get there. I'll just plod. Over years, his apprentice master died in the cobbler shop and ended up becoming a shoemaker, and he met a woman named Dorothy Plackett. They got married, and they had a child, and at the age of two, she died unexpectedly. William took over the shoemaker's business, but found himself, and Dorothy as a young married couple, they found themselves living in poverty and were subjected to all that that entails. Even though he owned the business, he was still in poverty. But what was growing underneath of him was this faith, this stirring of God to want to know more of him, just to, to learn more of what God wants for him and his life and his future. And he joined the Baptist in that time it was called the Particular Baptist Movement, but we'll just call it Baptist Movement for now. Okay, he joined the Baptist Movement. And it, when he was a 20-something, when he was a 20-something, he went to a conference with a bunch of other Baptist people, and he began to speak. And he wanted to stir within the Baptist Movement a desire to see the Great Commission filled, fulfilled. To move people out of the mundane and into the amazing in their faith, to see the work of God through Christ come to fruition. He began speaking with passion and vigor about the Great Commission, how we're all called to this as people. And he was actually interrupted in his speech. An older minister got up and said to him, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God sees fit to save the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. William sat down on the outside. But on the inside, he was standing up. <laughs> you know, people like that. About five years later, in 1792, William founded the first, what we know as mission agency today. William's last name is Carey, and William Carey, on May 30th of 1792, got before, which is a rather rather small gathering of people at this inauguration of the first mission agency, which he didn't know what would become. And in a message, a sermon that he delivered that has actually no remaining manuscripts of it because it was seemed to be so innocuous and, and unspectacular, he challenged the people there with ten words as his main point. Ten words that actually became so profound for our world that it has shaped the very world that you live in now and the way that the church has functioned from that point on. Very, very profound words. And here's what he said to these people in May 30th of 1792. He put it this way. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. One year later, William Carey found himself with his family in India, commissioned by this new agency. And there were no smoke and fireworks. There was no you know, background music playing to his life. There's no Hollywood script being written. This was ugly and messy for Carrie and his family. In fact, it was so ugly that his children got sick. His, excuse me, his wife got sick. His family was sick. She became so delusional that she attacked him with a knife when they were over there. They were running out of money. They didn't have the money. There was all kinds of things going against him. The language was too difficult for, for the family really to get. Kerry put his language interests to work, and over the time of spending over 40 years in India, he ended up translating the Bible into the major languages of India and parts of 209 other Indian dialects. 
he began a, a school which exists to this day, a divinity school now, in which today has 2,500 students in it in India. He attacked social issues of infanticide, of widow burning, things of this nature that he attacked and tackled as a man of faith. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. The amazing thing about Carrie's story is that Carrie's words and his example served as the foundation of modern missions as we know it today. He is known as the father of the modern-day missions movement. People like Adoniram Judson and David Livingston, who you've probably heard of, who reshaped how we think about African missions, went to Africa because of William Carey going to India. Someone like Hudson Taylor, who put inroads into China in such a profound way, went because of William Carey. The way that the modern missions movement has been shaped and impacted is here in almost full part, in large part, to the recent modern example of people like William Carey. A simpler, simple cobbler, shoemaker, living in poverty, who caught fire with his faith and said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for him. What does this have to do with us? Here at Grace Point, we talk about our value, our value of faith this way. We say this, that we believe we are transformed spiritually when we embrace challenges together. We believe we are transformed spiritually when we embrace challenges together. Faith is exercised when failure is possible. We hate sideways momentum. We're either growing or dying. You want to know what it's going to feel like at, at GPC, at Grace Point, to raise your family here, to, to, to live among us and to walk among us? This is one of those. This is what it's going to feel like. We want to be a people who are transformed spiritually when we embrace challenges together. We say, I don't think we can do that. We don't have the money for it. I, I don't know. Can we? Ex- expect great things from God. Attempt great things for him. You have no idea what hangs in the balance. We have no idea the impact on future generations, the impact on you and the impact on your family. We have no idea. Faith is exercised when failure is possible, right? As we grow older, our willingness to risk failure diminishes. And for those who buck that trend, we look at you, we're like, I want to be like you. I want to be like you. Because my inclination is to resist failure once I've experienced it enough. But faith is exercised when failure is possible. And we hate sideways momentum. We know what sideways momentum is, right? Sideways momentum is looking busy but getting nowhere. Okay, sideways momentum is if you watch a football game at all, you're seeing the running back try to get away from the defense by going all the way to the other side of the field. Then he gets tackled for a zero-yard gain. He ran 50 yards, but he got nowhere. Next play, they go this way. Let's all run on the side of the field. Let's read. Let's go this way. Let's just show up. Let's just be there, but let's not move forward. So we hate sideways momentum. It's that momentum that deceives you into thinking, because I'm busy, I must be growing. Because I'm active, I must be doing something. No, you can get tired and not actually be moving forward. You can be exhausted but not moving in the right direction. We hate that sideways momentum that's not actually moving the ball up the court in terms of our faith and how we're growing, how we're being transformed. And finally, we're either growing or dying. This is what we ask. So we ask this question here. 
How is my faith transforming me? How is my faith transforming me? So here's a question for you. If you were to be asked this question, by the way, you are being asked this question right now. How is my faith transforming me? Is there a ready answer? You know, is there a ready answer? Is there a chance for you to say, you know, this is how, this is how my faith is transforming me. And this may be difficult to think of quickly, but think of it this way. When you come to the end of yourself regularly, and you're like, I don't think I should do this. I don't know that I'm ready for. I'm too insecure too. When you come to the end of yourself, what do you do next? What's your routine habit next? Your faith transforms you when you say, you know, I'm going to embrace the challenge. And I'm going to go where failure is possible. I may not lead my wife well. I may not lead my children well. I may not be able to speak well to my friends at school on this issue. I may not be able to do what I think I could do. I may not be able to do that. But I'm not comfortable. I don't know if I'll be successful but I'm going to expect great things from God. I'm going to attempt great things for God. Where failure is possible, faith grows. Faith in God. Now, I want to share this last thing with you. And this, if you're still awake and still with me and still tracking, to me, this is um, probably worth the price of admission today, which, by the way, was pretty low. Okay. But this, this phrase to me and this next little uh, snippet... Um, to me, uh, is, is so valuable and so helpful to me as I think about how this actually works. I want to take you back to the screw tape letters of C.S. Lewis. And in there, Lewis writes so many helpful things. But again, he's writing from the perspective of this uh, demon trying to dissuade the Christian from following in the right way. And here's what he writes, writing uh, to Wormwood. He, meaning God, okay, he wants them, the Christian, that is, to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. You get the picture? This quote will continue in a moment, but you get the picture of a father wanting his child to walk and knowing you're never going to get this if I hold your hand. So I'm going to pull the hand away for your benefit that you can walk on your own. And even if the will is there to walk and even if you stumble, I will cheer you on in your stumbling. And he continues, and here's to me the most powerful thing that Lewis says in here. And he writes this, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer just desiring, but intending to do our enemy's will, that is God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and still obeys. Our cause is never so much in danger is when a Christian looks around and feels like God's hand has been removed and doesn't see God at work at all and says, I am still going to obey. 
I am still going to do what I know I need to do, even if I don't feel or see the hand of God, even if I don't have the comfort that I should do this. Even though I can't see how God might work, and even though I feel like I've been disappointed in the past, to have the man and the woman say, I don't care. If God is even against me, I will serve him to my very end. Our cause is never so much in danger, my dear Wormwood, if you find someone like that, who's willing to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And so let me ask you these three questions again. What's at stake? What hangs in the balance for you? What's your story going to be? your faith. Will people look at you toward the end of your life and say, man, I want to be like that. Not because they were awesome, but they believed. They acted. They had such faith. They stepped into their fears regularly. And how's your sight? Looking at a country, at a place, at a city that is not even here. Believing that your future is in a different place. Therefore being willing to risk and trust and believe. If you want to know what it's going to feel like to be at GPC, this is what I want to be with you. A place where we never for just our own sake, but for the sake of the glory of our God, expect great things from Him and attempt great things for Him. Starting personally and going from there. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up on the faithful Promises of God. Believe, trust, and let's do it together as we walk in this journey together. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the example of men and women in the past who have served you so well, who have even when it has been unclear what they should do and how they should do it, have stepped forward into a fear that they have, into an anxiety that they have, into a, an unknown, into something that's very uncomfortable, into perhaps a reconciliation, into personal growth, into community, into their own faith walk with you, into their family, into their business, into their leadership. People have stepped in have known that their expression of faith is not just about filling a pew or balancing a budget. But know intuitively it's more than that. It's way more than that. That our faith continues to transform us the renewal of our mind and our heart before you regularly. I pray that you would give us courage, Father, to do what we know we need to do with what we've heard to sign up for what we need to sign up for, to write the note we need to write, to take the day off of work to reflect and to change something, to do, to act out on our faith, knowing that faith without works is dead. Give us courage to have the conversation that we need to have. 
to show the person love and care that we need to show. To start something that we know we need to start or to stop something we know we just need to stop. We thank you that you walk with us. That you support us along this journey. That you've never left us. You promised your presence. You promised to be with us and never forsake us. And you've encouraged us to ask the question, therefore, what can man do to us? Give us that courage, Father, that reminder that you indeed are present. This very planet that we walk in is a reminder of your power, the same power that has raised you from the dead, is present with us today. The same power that we experience every morning when we wake up, every day when we live and breathe. It's the same power that has been present from the beginning of time and will continue to be with us. And so give us courage, I pray, to have a faith that is willing to risk the impossible that we can be transformed together. We pray this in Jesus' name.